Well, we are always interested in the final words that a person has to say at the end of their lives. For instance, Sir Isaac Newton, that famous, famous physicist who described gravity and so many other mechanics to us, apparently said as his last words the following. I don't know what I may seem to the world. But as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a, a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Wow. You know, such, such words, when we think about these kinds of words, they make us reflect more upon the character of a person's life, especially as we consider someone who had so many great accomplishments. We, we get to see a little bit more of what they saw as important and, and how they feel about themselves, how they felt about their own accomplishments and what they saw as important, of course. Well, in this passage, we have something of a last words moment with our Lord. Why do I say that? Because we're only finishing chapter 12. We've got a lot more chapters to go in this book. Certainly a lot, a lot more before he is crucified. So how are these his last words? Well, these are his last public words that he will give. Everything that we read from here on out, say between chapters 13 and 17, for instance, will be the words that he gives to his disciples in private. He's not speaking to the crowds anymore. And then after that comes his arrest. And so, of course, his teaching ministry doesn't continue. So this is the end of his teaching ministry, the end of his public discourse. And he knows it. He knows his time is there because he is God. He knows what time it is. So these are his remaining words that he wanted to leave ringing in the people's ears. Apparently he's giving them in the temple. We're not told exactly where he gives them or exactly when. But these words are the words that the Lord wanted emphasized for the people. These are the words he wanted to leave them with while they're still gathered. And so as we would expect, he chooses words that are most important for us to hear. And his words perfectly summarize the message that he's been giving for the last three years of his public ministry. He doesn't necessarily provide anything new then. His, his message here is a review of his teaching. And it comprises here the most prominent points that he wanted to get across. He presents... His message, the message, by the way, that the people have been ignoring. Well, we, I hope, are not going to ignore the words of Christ. We need to heed his words. And we'll note three reasons why in the text this morning. His words are God's light. Verses 44 through 46. His words are God's judgment, verses 47 and 48. And his words are God's commandment, verses 49 and 50. Well, let's look at the first of these. Verses 44 through 46, we see that Christ's words are God's light. Christ's words are God's light to the world. And this is what Jesus cried out and said, Verse 44, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. 
When Jesus was last speaking to the crowd, verse 36, we read that he said, you only have the light for a little longer. And then what? He hid himself. He hid himself. That is, it is as though he is punctuating his point here. You only have the light for a little bit longer, and then he goes away. Now, perhaps some time has elapsed. Again, the text doesn't tell us exactly when or where he gives this, this final appeal. But the Lord does speak up again now. He speaks up loudly so that the crowd can hear. And he then gives that final message. And his first words here remind us of the importance of believing in Jesus. It comes back to faith. It comes back to believing in him. So, so many people want us to, to, or want to see Jesus's words as teaching works. When they understand that they are sinners, they want to see a way of perhaps buying God off, buying their conscience off, and, and, and achieving some means of salvation on their own. What do I mean? Well, I, I mean this. They are wanting to work their way into heaven. And they'll look at passages like where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. And he says to the rich young ruler, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And they say, aha, there it is to inherit eternal life. This is what I also have to do. I have to give away all my money and give it to the poor. And then God will let me into heaven. Is that the way? No, that's not what Jesus taught. What is Jesus doing with the rich young ruler? He is using the weight of our moral duties as a means of bringing him to the end of himself and realizing that he doesn't have the means. He doesn't have the ability. In fact, he is not the righteous person he thought he was. He, in fact, is a sinner, and he is not someone who can just buy his way into heaven. He's someone who needs to believe in the finished work of Christ. Of course, it, a lot of that has to get played out before it becomes clear. But Jesus now at the end of his ministry is bringing it back to faith, to faith. This is where our focus should be. It should be on faith, not on works, but on faith. Jesus preached faith. In fact, his message is essential for anyone who wants to claim belief in God. If you want to say that you believe in God, you have to believe in Jesus. In fact, he says here that the believer in him does not believe in him, but in him who sent him. What is he talking about there? Well, for the sake of clarity, we might add in an only here with the translation and uh Translations like the New America, or excuse me, the, the New International Version, I think, do add in only belief in, in, in Jesus only or belief in him only, but rather also belief in the Father. That's the idea there. A person doesn't just come to Jesus alone when believing in him. A person comes to the Father, to God, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you not only come to believe in me, but also you come to believe in the Father. This is the sender. We've already noted this uh, multiple points in, the, in, in John's gospel. And a commentator notes this. The verbs for sent, apostol, apostolain and pepain, form a continual refrain in the gospel. Behind this type of statement stands a concept of Jesus as an agent of God in the carrying out of God's purposes on earth. God sent the Son, is what Scripture says. God the Father, to be more precise, sent his Son to, uh, to preach this message. And Jesus is an apostle then. He's a sent one. He's an ambassador of sorts. 
But he's more than that, and that's what he says here. He says that he is someone who is... uh, He says that he is someone who will bring people to God. If they believe in him, they will believe in the Father. Now, if you want to understand Scripture, you have to understand that Jesus links himself to the Father. You also have to understand the rest of Scripture links Jesus to the Father. I mean, consider how Paul started, or excuse me, John, the Apostle John. We're talking about Paul tonight, by the way, if you want to come tonight. We're talking about the Apostle Paul a little bit more. Uh, But John here, we're in John this morning. He starts the letter in this way. Look back at John 1.18. John 1.18. So this is still in the introductory portion of the book of John. Right before we read about John the Baptist. John 1.18, the Apostle John says this, No one has seen God at any time. God is spirit, right? So no one's seen God at any time. But here we have this transition. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him to us. He has, he, he has revealed him, him to us. So this is how John starts it. Now, if we want to talk about Paul, we can talk about the fact that Paul picks this up in Colossians, and he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. That's in Colossians 1. I forgot to put that up there. But in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, 3, we read this. And he is the radiance of his glory. That's talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. Whose glory? God's. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on Hi. Now, kids, would you say that God holds this universe together? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it says Jesus holds the universe together. What do you think about that? Same, right? Jesus is God. Right? That is the teaching. That is the consensus of Scripture. You know, there are some people out there who say Jesus isn't divine. Jesus isn't God. But that's not what Scripture says. And we want to base what we believe on Scripture. And Jesus taught this of himself, by the way. <clears throat> John 8, 19. They, they, the people were confused, of course, by Jesus. And, G- and they asked Jesus, where's your father? Because, they, because he kept talking about his father, and they were wondering, what father are you talking about? This is what he said. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's talking about God. He's talking about God the father. That's right, God. Take a look at John 10. John 10, verse 30. John 10, verse 30. Real simple little verse. You're looking for a Bible verse to memorize, to impress your parents with. This is a good one. This is Jesus talking. I and the Father are one. There it is. I and the Father are one. That's what Jesus says. You say, well, maybe he meant something else by that. Look at the very next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That means they wanted to throw rocks at him until he was dead. That's not that that that's a pretty big reaction on their part, right? What what did they interpret him as saying? They interpreted him as saying he was God. And they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. If anyone else said that, it would be blasphemy. If I said that, that would be blasphemy. 
But for Jesus, it's not blasphemy. He and the Father are one. Now, there are more examples that we could look at which prove the point. But here, here, here's the essence of the, of the argument. Jesus claimed unity with the Father. The Bible claims that Jesus was unified with the Father. And we must accept the word of God. We must accept what is being taught here. We must accept Jesus' words. If we're talking about heeding the words of Christ, this is part of it. Jesus said he was God. We have to accept that. We have to accept that. And so in verse 45, Jesus goes on. He says, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now, in Jewish literature, there's a way of paralleling thoughts. That's a typical thing. And so when you have uh, two statements that are back to back that kind of say the same thing, but then they use different imagery, like believing and then seeing, these two thoughts are parallel. Jesus says, you believe in me, you believe in the Father. Then Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. These are parallel thoughts. They go right alongside each other. And what does he mean? He means that those who see him... Well, we could say physically back then, if you if you were alive back then, you would see him standing there. He was really there. He was someone you could touch. He was someone you could you could uh, go out to eat with. Right. He was someone who was real. That was an important point. He really had flesh and blood. He says, if you see me, you see the father. But, of course, God is spirit, and, and, and for us today, we, we, we have this sense that, okay, we have, to, we have to spiritually see Jesus. Jesus isn't physically with us today. And so if you spiritually see Jesus, then you spiritually see the Father. And so we, we understand that seeing Jesus demonstrates the Father to us. Now... I have to say something with that. That's why it is very, very, very dangerous whenever we have fictionalized versions of Jesus before us. We have to watch out for that. And I know that shows like The Chosen are very popular today. But the producers have been very clear that they're proud that most of their material does not come from the Bible. It does not come from the Bible. And I think they even gave a figure of 70%. I did watch the first episode. I would say it's probably closer to 95% doesn't, doesn't come from the Bible, although I understand that was just the first episode. We should get to know the biblical Jesus more. If we want to see the Father, we need to know the biblical Jesus, the one who existed. And this is the real Jesus here in the text. And what does the real Jesus do? He reveals the light of God's truth. He reveals the light of God's truth to us. Because he is the light. That's what he says in verse 46. I, and he even uses the emphatic pronoun there. I, I have come as light into the world. No one else. There is no other Jesus who is the light of the world. Only this one. Only him. There's no other Messiah. He's the light of men. This is why the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, I don't know why I keep saying that, I guess because that was the last thing I was working on last night. The Apostle John, I have to remember where we are. <laughs> Second time I'm teaching today. This is the Apostle John, and he starts off his gospel with this. Jesus is the light of men, John 1, 4. He then goes on in verse 9 of John chapter 1 to say this. Jesus enlightens every man. He's a light source. Like a lamp in the darkness. You know those little oil lamps? Some of you kids know exactly those little oil lamps because you got a picture of them right in front of you. That would be very important. 
in the darkness, right? Especially before they had electricity, before they had light bulbs, everything else. You needed those little lamps. Otherwise, you'd stumble in the dark. Jesus is the light to keep us from spiritually stumbling in the dark. So we know what we should believe, how we should operate in this world. Jesus adopts this imagery to himself. He does so here. He also warned back in chapters 7 and 9 that he wouldn't always be in the world. And we just read, of course, in verse 36, that he demonstrated that he wouldn't always be there. He says, you won't always have the light with you, and then he leaves. It's a warning to them and to us. So Jesus brings it back to believing in him. Why? Because he is the light of God. He is the light of God, and his words provide light to understanding who God is and what God wants. And I would say, if that's the case, then we need to heed his words. We need to pay attention to his words. Because only those who believe in him, that is, believe in the Father, right? Only those who do that will have the light that they need. Only those who do that won't remain in darkness. Or if you have a King James Bible this morning, if you have a new King James Bible, you, you might have the word abide there. That's one of the John's themes is the idea of abiding. We don't want to abide in the darkness. We want to be in the light. And if you're in the light, you don't have to worry about stumbling. I mean, for the most part, some of us still stumble with the lights on, but you know what I mean. You, you don't stumble in the dark. <laughs> we don't have to remain under God's condemnation. That would be stumbling, right? And that brings us to the next point here. God, Christ's words are God's judgment. Christ's words are God's judgment. Let's look again at verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world or did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. You know, as we think about Christ and what he taught, one thing that I hope you realize is that Christ always honored God's word. Christ always honored God's word. This is something that a lot of people uh, don't understand today, but he did. In fact, there was once uh, in Luke 11, where someone tried to venerate Mary, and said, you know, blessed are, blessed is the womb that, that bore you. And Jesus said in reply, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This is where true blessing comes from. Hearing the word of God and observing it. Because it's not just about hearing. This is something that we have to see. It's not just about hearing. It's about doing as well. And so he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This is something he constantly taught. He was constantly uh, correcting people. He, he corrected the Pharisees, for instance. He said, you err because you don't know the scriptures. He honored God's word. He condemned those, even at the beginning of his ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, he condemned those who would try to take away from God's word. And his brother James, later on, he picks this up. In fact, turn to James real fast. James 1. Right after the book of Hebrews. James. James 1.23. 
Jesus said, not Jesus, Jesus' brother, James said, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately, or he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all he does. Well, that's what we want. We don't want to look in the mirror, you know, checking ourselves out. Oh, okay, do I have a hair out of place? Do I have something on my face? And then immediately walk away and not correct anything we see. We want to look at the law of God and we want to correct what we see there. If, if we are at variance in some way, we want to correct ourselves. We want to get back to what God would have for us. And so this is the word that Jesus wants us to hear and to observe. And he treats his word as equal with that of the word of God. He treats his own word. Jesus Christ treats his own word as equal with that of the word of God. And we could look at a lot of different places for this. Uh, one in particular does come from the Sermon on the Mount, and that is in Matthew 7. Our kids uh, may have sang. I don't know if, if people still sing this. I remember singing it probably with my kids, um, and I remember singing it as a kid. The wise man builds his house upon a rock. You remember that? And there's even the little hand motions. I don't remember at all. I won't embarrass myself up here. Uh, but the wise man builds his house upon the rock and the rain comes tumbling down and the floods come up and the house stands firm. But the foolish man, that's right, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand and the rain comes down and the floods come up and his house goes. Yeah. That's right. So Matthew 7 is where we get that song from. Matthew 7, 24 and 26, Jesus says that the one who hears his words and keeps them is like the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And in verse 26, the foolish person is the one who refuses to act upon his words. That's the one who builds his house upon the sand. Jesus is saying his words are the rock. Wow. So, so, so it's actually wisdom to build, build our lives on Jesus's word. In fact, he, re, he equates rejection of him and rejection to his words. If you reject his words, you reject him. This is how vital he puts uh, the, the point on it. This is the point he puts on it. You cannot claim to believe in Jesus and also reject his teachings. There are people who try that. There are many today, for instance, who are, who are happy to cherry pick a few verses from Jesus and twist his teachings uh, and falsely paint him as some kind of communistic, disestablished Mentarian, uh, a social justice warrior, a revolutionary kind of guy. It's like, okay, well, it sounds like you like Jesus. If you meet someone like that, you, this is something you could say. It sounds like you like Jesus. Would you also accept what Jesus says here about the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And that no one comes to the Father except you come through him. Would you be willing to come to Jesus and have life and have truth? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I, I, I don't like that. Oh, I thought you were accepting the words of Jesus. You're, you're just saying how important it is to see Jesus' words here. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I, I, I don't like it when, when you have those kinds of comments. In fact, I, probably, I, I think that someone added that in. Jesus didn't really say that. Okay, so you're saying you don't accept all of Jesus' words. This is important for us to see. 
we need to accept all of Jesus' words. And by the way, not just all of his words, what we might call the red letters. Some of your Bibles have red letters, right, where Jesus talks. It's also the black letters. Because if Jesus is the eternal son of God, then he was in the beginning with God, as John says. And if he is the expression of God, then who was it who was speaking in Genesis 1 when he said, let there be light? It was Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ. Who was it who revealed himself to Moses and said, I am who I am? Oh, that means that everything in the Old Testament contains the words of Jesus and it are the words of Jesus. It is the words of Jesus. And we'll even go a step further and say everything in the New Testament is the word of Christ. Including James. It really is Jesus speaking there. Speaking through his brother. This is all Christ's word. You can't just take some of it and say, well, I like what Jesus said here, but I don't like what Paul said over here. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. You can't accept some of Jesus's words and reject the rest and then say, I'm a follower of Jesus. He doesn't give us that option. We have to heed all of Christ's word. All of it. People don't like that. They, they don't like, for instance, that, that there's a, a punishment. They don't like the fact that there's hell. A place of righteous judgment against sinners. But scripture, it's not like I like talking about it. Scripture teaches we all deserve it. Right? Including, uh, I deserve it. Now, there are some people who look at hell and they're like, I'll deserve that. I, I haven't done anything that wrong. Sure, I've done a few things, but I haven't done anything that wrong. That's someone who doesn't really honor the law of God, who says that. No, we, we all do deserve it, if we're honest with ourselves. We do deserve condemnation, but Jesus Christ gives us that word of peace. But we also have, if there's not going to be any peace if we don't understand that there's also judgment. There's not good news without bad news. And so he says it's not just about hearing his teaching. It's about obeying it. And it's about keeping it. On a Sunday morning, we come in, we hear the word of Christ through the preached word. Do we keep it? We talk a lot about expository preaching in churches. And there does need to be expository preaching where we are explaining the word of God in an, in an expositional manner so that you are having it explained to you. But that's no good if you're not also expository listeners where you're listening and receiving and getting those truths and receiving them to yourself. It's no good for, I mean, I could up here preach till my face is blue, right? <laughs> that doesn't mean anything unless you are receiving it. We all have to receive the word of Christ. By the way, when I preach, I hope you understand I'm also preaching to myself too, right? We, so when I say we all, I mean we all. I, I have to receive it too. I can't be up here hypocritically preaching something I don't believe or don't practice myself. I have to receive it too. And so do you. And so we have to observe his word. We have to keep his word. And he warns that judgment is coming. Although he warns in a, in a, in a way that you might not expect I would expect if, if he were to give this speech, my next prediction would be him say, and I will judge you. But he says the opposite, actually. He says, I don't judge. As one commentary notes, so he could uh, rephrase it as, I do not execute judgment right now. I do not execute judgments. 
There's a strong disjunctive here. He, he's not here to condemn. Why is he here? He's here to save. This is what we've already read, right? John, John 3.17, for instance. He, right after that famous John 3.16 verse. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him does not perish, but has everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to what? To save it, right? To save it. That the world might be saved through him. Now, Jesus doesn't deny, by the way, that he engages in judgment. It's not like Jesus over here, I don't, I don't, I don't judge anything. You know, some people have that view of Jesus too, right? He, he's like, I'll judge people, you know. Just whatever, whatever floats your boat, you know. You do you, live your truth, you know. Whatever, no, that's that Jesus does engage in judgment. In fact, he even says in John 5, for, uh, yes, John 5, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And elsewhere, he says, if, if I judge, my judgment is pure judgment. He does judge. He judges righteously, though. But at this moment, uh, in, this, in this time, when he is on the earth, why is he there? This is known as his first advent. We, we call Christmas time Advent season, right? This is his first advent, first time he comes. He comes to save. There is coming a second advent of Christ, a second coming of Christ. That's when he comes to judge. Right now, his main purpose is salvation, and so he wants folks to understand that his primary mission is to save. So how are people going to be judged? Well, they're going to be judged by his words. The words that they reject, that's how they're going to be judged. This is difficult for folks to receive. Another commentary notes this. I have it up on the screen there. The mistake in the older liberal theology was to see the word of God as a message of love only, not also as a word of judgment. Scripture is clear that the word of God is a, is a sword with two sharp edges. It cuts with an edge of life and with an edge of death. It always cuts with one side or the other in a saving or a judging manner. God's word is also likened to a fire which devours all that stands in its path and to a hammer which breaks the rock into pieces. God's word is not to be trifled with. God's word can bring judgment. You say, well, well, you're talking about God's word. I thought we were talking about Jesus' word. Yes. It's the same. It's the same word. And judgment comes through the word of Christ, just as it does through the rest of the word of God, because it is all the word of Christ. His words are indeed the words of God. His words are indeed scripture. They are inspired. And it will be the means of judgment on the last day. In fact, let's consider that by turning to Revelation chapter 20. So... That's in the back, right before the book of maps. <clears throat> Revelation 20. And verses 11 through 15. This is the judgment that comes at the end of the age. 
And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. By the way, if we're seeing him who sat upon it, then we're seeing Jesus. Remember, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6. John argues he saw Jesus on the throne. This is Jesus. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no presence or no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. It means like kings and paupers, the, the, the rich and the poor, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the death, the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And so think about this. There are several books they may have been scrolls, uh, but they had recorded on them all the deeds that were done. Say all of your deeds, all of your deeds that you have ever done recorded there. These individuals are being judged according to those deeds. There is one other book mentioned there, the book of life. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. No one judged according to their deeds will get a reprieve. No one judged according to their deeds will receive justification. They will all receive condemnation. I mean, if you think about it, in your own life, you've broken God's law many times. If you're judged only according to your own deeds, you would be condemned. You want your name written in the book of life. That's where salvation is. You say, how do I get my name there? By believing in the word of Christ. By believing in the word of Christ. That's how you avoid the judgment that Jesus warns of here. See, the Father will condemn people, and he will do so through the word of the Son, because theirs is the same message. This is a triune God we're talking about here. The Son is saying what the Father has for him to say, and he expects people to obey his Son, because the Son is accurately communicating his word. The Son of God comes with the commandment of God, and that brings us to the next point here, the last point for today. Christ's words are God's commandments, verses 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus is the mouthpiece of God. In fact, uh, just for the sake of clarifying that, take a look at Hebrews real fast with me. Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Hebrews 1, verse 1, we read God, after he spoke, so this is after, so God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
By the way, again, I asked that question a moment ago, who was speaking in Genesis? Here we have that, that answer. It was through the Son that God the Father made the world. And then, the, then we get to verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And so we see that Jesus is not only the exact representation of the nature of God, he also is the mouthpiece. He's the prophet who speaks. God used other prophets in the past, but there's a finality here. And that's why the New Testament is so much shorter than the Old Testament, because it was all within that first century. Jesus was that final mouthpiece. Of course, he appointed prophets and apostles to, to spread his message, but, but that was it. That was the ending of the collation of that message. Jesus is the mouthpiece of God. He's the prophet. He's the apostle. He is the Messiah of the Father. Amen. And Jesus, the Son of God, will accurately communicate the message of God. And so, to, again, reject Christ's words is to reject God and what God is teaching. Again, Christians do struggle with this, and it's something that we, we, we have to be aware of so that if we see it within ourselves, we can put it to death within our own being. They tend to think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. Or at least... You know, if it's the same God, God's learning. Oh, God got so much more gracious. Like first he was doing all that fire and brimstone stuff. But then, you know, he started saying, well, maybe there's a better approach, you know, and he, you know, kind of learns. I don't want to serve a God who learns, right? <laughs> I want a God who knows the end from the beginning. But they want to see, you know, some kind of contrast between what Jesus had to say. I always love it. Sometimes people will say, you know, you, you, you like the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is all about hating your neighbor. Jesus said you need to love your neighbor as yourself. You, you know Jesus is quoting the Old Testament when he says that, right? That's, that's kind of at the beginning. That's in the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe you're misinterpreting what the law is all about. Just like the Pharisees did. No, Jesus exalted the word of God. And he even wrote it. He sanctioned it. He is the lawgiver. And he's the one who provided grace. His are not just the red letters, they're also the black letters. I once had a kid ask me, so if, if, if the red letters are Jesus, are the black letters the narrator? <laughs> I thought that was an amusing question. I said, well, actually, they're all Jesus's words. Jesus just teaching in a different way through other people in that case. But Jesus, whenever he does speak, he doesn't speak of his own initiative or as the English Standard Version translates on his, his own authority. He, he speaks within the will of the Father. And he does this because there is unity within the Trinity. There's oneness within God. I know the Trinity is a very difficult subject for us to wrap our heads around because we are limited creatures and we're considering the infinite God. But it's a doctrine nonetheless that we have to accept because it is from Scripture. And as we think about that, well, if God is one, like Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. The Lord is one. Well, if God is one, then we can't, we cannot say we worship three gods. Sometimes it's something that we struggle with. Sometimes people will say that, but it's not true. We don't worship three gods. We only worship one God. You say, I thought you said Jesus is also God. Jesus is God because he's God, the son. The father is God because he's God, the father. The Holy Spirit is God, because he's the Spirit of God. But they are all one God. 
And yes, I know that's that that's a lot to take in. Uh, I know that makes your brain hurt. It makes my hurt my brain hurt too. But nonetheless, it is what the Bible teaches. And if there is only one God, there's only one essence. And that means there's only one will. I don't know if you thought about that. You think that sometimes there are times when the father wants to do something and the son is like, oh, well, I don't know if we, sh we should do that. And the Holy Spirit is like, well, maybe there's a third option between you two. No, 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 no. No, there's only one God, so there's only one will. There's something that gets debated. like the It's called the eternal submission of the son sometimes, ESS, or the eternal functional subordination of the son, EFS. Um, you know, these are terms that get thrown around. Uh, if you've ever wondered about that debate, the debate is over whether there is one will of God or multiple wills of God. There's only one will of God. What does that mean practically? Well, that means that when Jesus saves you, we, we believe in Jesus, we want Jesus to save us, right? When Jesus saves you, that was also the will of the Father. And that was also the will of the Holy Ghost. Because there's only one will of God. It's not like Jesus is saving you and the father's up there like, no, no, not, not him, not her. And Jesus is like, no, father, I know, I know, I know. But, you know, this, I, I think I can redeem this person. Not that person. Don't bring, don't bring that person around my house again. Some of you parents know that with, with the kids, right? Don't bring that person around my house, kid. The Father's not doing that with you. If the Son wants to save you, it's because His Father also wanted to save you, and the Holy Spirit wanted to save you. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. You might say, well, I thought Jesus had two wills. When Jesus took on flesh, he then also took on a human nature, which means he had joined to his divine will, which was the will of God, a human will. And yes, in that human will, when he took on flesh, that had to learn submission, that had to learn obedience. But that's the only way in which we could say that there are two wills there. There is only the one will of God. And of course, you know, Jesus submitted to the Father, so there still is only one will of God. The Godhead is unified. And so if the Godhead is unified, what Jesus says represents the will of the Father. And what Jesus commands represents the will of the Father. And Jesus' commands, his words, are the commandments of God. And vice versa. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we are not just talking about the commandments of God, we're also talking about the commandments of Christ. All of Scripture is profitable. We have to remember that. You know, we can talk about the Old and New Covenant at a different time, but it is important for us to see this is all of the word of the Father and the Son. But Jesus also says when he, when he speaks, look at the end of verse 49. He says that he speaks the commandment that he's been given as to what to say and what to speak. What does that mean? Is that just saying the same thing? It could be that it's just repetition. But there's another way of looking at this. This could also be saying the way Jesus is speaking as well as what he is to say. God cares both about the words that Jesus spoke and the manner in which he communicated those words. And he cares about that with us too, by the way. We have to we have to watch that with ourselves, because sometimes I, I've heard folks try to excuse themselves. They're like, well, I'm just a blunt person. I, I say it how it is. God calls us to speak the truth in love. We have to watch ourselves. It's not just about what we say. It's also about how we say it. But we need to follow our Lord's command here, and not just his command, but also his example. He didn't, he didn't bend the bruised reed, right? We have, to, we have to be patient with people. We have to be loving. We have to be gracious with people. 
We have to follow our Savior in speaking words of grace. Of course, our Lord did it perfectly. And he knows his are words of eternal life. And he says, therefore, the things I speak, I speak as the Father has told me. He is saying he wants to save people. And so he's going to give the commandment of God. Now you say, what is the commandment of God? The people asked Jesus the same thing. Remember that? He said, what can we do to know that we are working the will of God? He said, this is the will of God. Believe on him whom he has sent. If you believe, you are following the commandment of God. If you do not believe, repent and believe. And now you're following the commandment of God. This is what he gives for us. This is the word he gives. He desires that people come to salvation just as a father does. And so he accurately communicates this message of eternal life. This is the final appeal he gives with the people. These are the final words that he gives. These are the words he wanted ringing in the people's ears as he left to have private teaching with his disciples. So as we wrap this up, you know, sometimes people wonder why so many of my morning messages, my AM messages from the book of John have been so focused on the gospel. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a couple of reasons, actually. The first is that the book of John, as we've talked about, is an evangelistic book. Its main purpose is evangelism. And so most of what we get out of this book is going to be evangelistic in nature. And people need to hear, that good, hear the good news of that evangelism, that Jesus died for their sins and that he rose again from the grave on the third day. And on Sunday mornings in particular, where we have more people who come, it is vital that unbelievers in the congregation hear the call of Christ to salvation. And I hope that they not only hear it this morning, but they, that they heed it. That they obey the words of Christ and they come to him in faith. It's obviously worthwhile to preach the gospel of the good news. And if they have not obeyed yet, I hope that you will pray for them. That they will obey because otherwise there will be no hope for them. If they don't obey the word of God, there is no hope for them. So I hope that you will pray for any unbelievers who are in here. If you are yourself a believer and if you're an unbeliever, I hope that you will accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. But still, sometimes Christians forget that they also need this message. They also need it. This is not just a message for, believer, for unbelievers. The introductory message to get them into the, into the camp and then we just move on to other sermons from there on out. No, no. It's important for them to hear it, yes. But it's also important for Christians to hear about repentance and faith. Why? Because we as believers are out in the world all through the week. And we need that gospel hope. We need that refreshment that the gospel can bring to us. That Jesus has provided everything that we need. As we're out there in the world and, and, and our feet are getting dirty with, 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 with the smut of this world, we need Jesus to, 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 to come on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and to, to, to take his apron on and put his apron on and to cleanse our feet, to wash our feet. We're going to read about that next. So that was a preview of what's to come. Jesus does provide cleansing for us. And we need to see that. We need to see it's not by our own efforts. It's by his. He's the one who does the work. Jesus is the one who pays it all. Because as we're out there in the world and we're getting dirty, we might forget that. And we might even be walking down the wrong road. And we might fall into sin and then realize we come to our senses and say, no, I shouldn't be doing this. Well, what do you do then? 
Do you have to atone for your own sins at that point? No, Jesus paid it all. You need to come back to him, repent and come back to the cross. Christians need to hear this too. Christians need to hear this because it is through the power of Christ that we can be sanctified as well, that we can be set apart and we can be cleansed from our sin. We need to hear that Jesus gives us the power to deny ungodliness in our lives. And it's because of the power of Christ we can live godly and upright lives. And so we need to remember the significance of Christ's words for eternal life. Don't let Satan and this world distract you from the beauty of this message. This is the message he wanted to leave with people. This is the message that he left as his final words of public teaching. I hope that you embrace this message. I hope that you heed the words of Christ. Don't let uh, anyone take this from you. I pray that you will accept it because now more than ever, it is important for you to know these words.